0: Well, good morning, everybody. Um, as Kevin said, my name is Matt, and uh, we have been here at Lamb since May or so, and I noted that Kevin is either optimistic or polite, one of the two, because he thanked me for preaching before he heard the quality of the product. Um, I'll leave you to decide after I'm done, whether it was optimism or politeness. Uh, my wife, Laura, is in the back with my two kids, Emma and Eddie, and if I haven't met you yet, I'm excited to get to do that soon. In my day job, I am a lawyer. Um, I'm not one of those like really exciting lawyers, though, like Scott Hansen is. Nobody makes television shows about what I do. I write wills for people, pretty much that's half of my practice maybe a little more do some things for businesses Uh, i'm the town attorney for broadway so if you live in broadway and you're mad at what the government is doing you may actually be mad at me it's possible you don't know it uh and that's my practice and i'm happy to talk to you this morning why are we here why are we in church this morning why are you here now if you're a kid and you're sitting here you may be thinking to yourself i'm here because daddy made me come to church okay that may well be the case put that to one side if you're not subject to a parental constraint why are you here why are you here at a christian church as opposed to some other kind of religious assembly that you might have decided to go to why are you in a religious assembly at all when you could be out hiking or looking at the beautiful fall foliage that we see all around us, or asleep in bed, or at home, or at a restaurant eating brunch. Why are you doing this as opposed to one of those other things that you could be doing? Well, that's another way of asking why are you a Christian, if you are a Christian. For me, the answer to that question is that the narrative of Christianity, the story that Christianity is telling us about the world around us, the story that Christianity tells about me and the things that I sense inside my own heart sometimes, the really broken, awful things that I sense about myself and also sometimes the things that are okay that I sense about myself. The things that I see around me, the pain that I see sometimes at work in in the clients that I talk with and the people that I I work with, Uh, the pain that I see when I read the newspaper and look at everything that's going on in the world around us, In my view, the narrative of Christianity, the story that Christianity tells, provides the best explanation for those things. It provides the best prism through which we can understand what's happening both inside of us and outside of us. Christianity tells a story, and that story, to me, makes the most sense compared to the other stories that we could tell ourselves about what's going on on the inside and what's going on on the outside. And indeed, the Bible itself is a story. And that's hard for some of us to get our minds around sometimes, because many of us in our backgrounds have been trained to read the Bible as though it was not a story. We've been trained to read it as though it was an encyclopedia. What do I mean by that? Well, when I was a kid, I was a rather odd sort of child. I admit it. Perhaps you know me, you can tell that these sorts of things were odd in my childhood. But one of my most favorite things to do in my childhood before I went to bed was to sit and read the encyclopedia. I admit it. And it was actually like a real encyclopedia. Some of those who are younger, you know, you're thinking of Wikipedia. Wikipedia is great. I love Wikipedia. I was reading it yesterday, probably when I should have been working on this. But I mean like a real encyclopedia, like books. We had a neighborhood given us a 1959 27-volume world book encyclopedia. And I would pick up volumes of this and read it in my bedroom when other people were learning how to do things like play basketball. I was reading articles about Martin uh, Van Buren and Millard Fillmore. I learned things like that Millard Fillmore is the 13th president of the United States, that he was president from 1850 to 1853, that he was from Maryland, and that he became president when his predecessor, Zachary Taylor, died. I can tell you these things. I still can't make a jump shot. But think about the way an encyclopedia works. I would open an article about Millard Fillmore and read about that particular thing, all right? And I would know a lot about that particular thing, but I perhaps would lack the context of how that thing fit into the stuff that came before and the stuff that came after. We don't read an encyclopedia the same way we would read, say, Pride and Prejudice, right? We don't expect an encyclopedia article to have a beginning, a middle, a climax, and an end. And I'm suggesting you today that Christianity tells a story and that we need to learn to think about Christianity as a story and to see ourselves in our own place in that story so that we can understand where things came from and where we're headed. Turning your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 1, and I think you're going to see that Ephesians chapter 1 is suggesting what I have just said to you, that the Bible is a story and that we have a place in it. There are three things that I want you to notice in this passage. Three things, yes, because I grew up as a Baptist and I just can't help myself so you will bear with me first thing is God's past affecting our present God's past affecting our present the second thing is God's future brought into our present God's future brought into our present and the third thing is becoming a part of God's story becoming a part of God's story all right so look at the text we have a word in this text which is an important word that occurs three times look at verse 11 In him, the text says, we have obtained an inheritance. There's your word. Verse 14, the Holy Spirit, the text says, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. That word again. Verse 18, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, what is an inheritance? As somebody who writes wills for a living, I am perhaps uniquely qualified to discuss this topic with you. (laughs) An inheritance is something that you receive from somebody who has died. All right? Now, in our own modern context, in the law of wills, you can write your will and you can pretty much leave your property to anybody that you want to leave it to. There aren't very many constraints anymore on what you can say in your will. You can't disinherit your spouse in every state except for Georgia. Okay? That's one constraint. I don't know why that is. You know, Somebody does the 90-day fiancé thing, they want to move to Georgia, that's a bad bad warning sign, probably. You can disinherit your spouse in Georgia. You can't in every other state. In Louisiana, you can't disinherit your children. That's because they got a weird French law thing going on still there. But generally, you can write your will under modern law. You can leave your stuff to whoever you want to leave it to. That was not the case under ancient law. Even under medieval English law, that was not the case. Generally, an inheritance under the medieval law, and under the law as St. Paul would have understood it when he was using this word, an inheritance was something you received from your parents. You had very little ability to pass your stuff outside of your family. And even within your family, you didn't have a lot of ability to give it to somebody other than your oldest son, (laughs) okay? Um, Now, from a policy perspective we can leave that to one side, but that was the way that they understood it. So an inheritance is a gift passed down from your ancestors. So in what sense is it that we have an inheritance? Well the text gives us a couple of clues. The first thing the text says is that the inheritance is only possible through Jesus, right? Verse 11, in him, in Jesus, we've received the inheritance. He's the linchpin of whatever it is that we've got, okay? And then in verse 18, the text tells us that the inheritance is, quote, in the saints, quote. And these are clues, because what St. Paul is telling us here is that we do not stand independently. The Church of the Lamb is not something that just sprung into existence. It's not something that was just brand new that somebody decided on their own to create. We stand on the shoulders of a spiritual legacy that we have received from generations and generations before us. And we are part of that. We are part of a story. It's not a story that started several years ago when the Church of the Lamb was founded. It's not a story that started in the 1800s. As many people in America, in American Christianity, we can't see past like 1800 when we're thinking about spiritual things. It didn't start then. It didn't even start in the the 1540s when the Anglican Church was founded. Paul is saying to these people in the first century, you're part of a story that goes way, 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 way back. And what you've received spiritually is this inheritance from the people who came before you. What is that story? What is the content, substantively, of the story? Well, it's not all in this text, right? The entire thing is not in Ephesians chapter 1. If we try to say that it is, we're actually going back to an encyclopedic way of reading things, right? Um, Ephesians 1 is part of a larger narrative, but there are hints in the text as to the story. Now, I'm a grammar geek. I admit it. Um, I do understand, actually, how to use the word whom correctly, and in what context one is supposed to do that as opposed to who. So look at some pronouns with me, all right, as we look at the text. Verse 12, we, we who were the first to hope, all right, that's the first pronoun, we. Then you skip over to verse 13. You, you also believe. So we start out with we. The second one is you. We go from we to you. All right, and then in verse 14, look at the pronoun. Our inheritance. St. Paul references our inheritance. So we go from we to you to our. And that's a hint at the story because the we is St. Is Paul and the nation of Israel, the ones who had the, the promises of God in the Old Testament. We go from we to you. Who's the you in this passage? The you is the people in who, Ephesus who had believed, the Gentiles who had grown up worshiping Zeus and Hera and, and all of the other pagan deities and who had come to believe in the God of Israel. So we go from we to you and then we go to our which suggests that Paul now, in this new era, came to understand that the we of Israel and the you of the Gentiles had been made into an hour of one people. So how does that fit into the story? Well, the story goes something like this. God made the world and it was awesome. It was so great, it was beautiful. It was amazing and then Adam and Eve broke it in the garden. They sinned and and ruin came upon God's creation. God loved the creation so much. He loved the people that he had made so much that he was not willing to let it sit broken and ruined forever. And he developed a plan to fix it and to rescue it. That plan centered on a group of people that he called the nation of Israel. And he was going to use them to fix everything. Everything. By the end of the Old Testament, though, the plan seemed like it had gone off track because the nation of Israel itself became part of the brokenness that they were supposed to fix. They had run off after other gods. They weren't fulfilling their vocation. And so then, at the climax of the story, God himself came in the person of Jesus to do what Israel was failed to do, to rescue his people and then to create the hour so that the Gentiles also, so that you also could become part of this narrative through which God is engaged in the process of fixing the world. So we go from we, the Jews, to you, the Gentiles, to our, and that's us. And we stand as part of that story we depend for our spiritual sustenance in a real way on the background of what came before us on the foundation of Christ and the Apostles and the prophets and we're part of this narrative and we, we distort things if we can't see ourselves as part of this narrative God's past affecting our present so what does this leave us God's future brought into our presence okay we'll look at verses 20 and 21 How does this story end? Well, the text says in verses 20 and 21 that God has has seated Jesus at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. The story ends with God healing the universe and fixing the damage that Adam and Eve had done through Jesus but where does that leave us? What part of the story are we in right now? You know, I I look at verse 21, and if you look at it carefully, Paul says that Jesus has this power not only in this age, but also in the one to come. I think I would have written that differently, (laughs) because when I look around me, I think I would have written it not only in the age to come, but also this age. It's harder to believe that Jesus is ruling in this age than it is to have an idea that he might one day rule in the future once everything is healed. The text says, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And I think to myself, not only in the age to come, but also in this age. It's very hard to see it when we look around. But look at the text again. I'm going to go back into grammar geek mode with you. Look at the verbs in verses 20 and 22. Okay, God raised Jesus from the dead. We can accept that, right? That's something that happened. It happened in the past. Okay, and then seated, seated him at his right hand, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name. And then down in verse 22, it says that God put, put all things under his feet and gave, gave him his head over all things to the church. What tense are those verbs? Is it a future of tense? No, all three of those verbs are past tense verbs, right? Seated him in the heavenly places. Put, not will put, put all things under his feet. Gave, not will give, gave him as head over all things to the church. These are things, the text says, that happened in the past that God has done this in Jesus' death and resurrection, that these things are true now. And that's hard, folks, because when I look in myself and when I look around me, these things are very difficult for us to see. So how can we see it then? If If we believe the Bible, if we take the Bible seriously, if we believe the text, the text says that these things have happened, Okay, it doesn't look to us like they've happened when we read the newspaper, when we look at things around us. How do we see them? Well, this is where we need verse 17, right? What does Paul pray for the Ephesians in verse 17? Which by extension means that he's also in many ways praying that for us, right? He prays that the God of our Father, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, so that we may know. This is the ESV, of course, when N.T. Wright translates this passage. He translates the prayer this way. He has St. Paul praying that the Ephesians would be able to see things that people can't normally see. He's praying that, uh, that they would be able to see God's kingdom, even though it's hard to see the thing is it is here if you look if you look very carefully it's here when God's community assembles on Sunday morning given our diverse perspectives our diverse backgrounds when the Spirit enables us to come together as one body and do things for those who are vulnerable when it enables us to be together in unity even though we're also very different we see it when we go outside and we look at God's beautiful creation And how it's still so amazing and beautiful, even though Adam and Eve have messed it up so much. Even though we've messed it up so much. We see it uh, when people believe in Jesus. And when their lives actually change after they believe in Jesus. We see it um, in the sacraments. We see it every week um, when we come and receive Jesus up here in the bread and the wine. I was reading on Twitter last week. I probably shouldn't, right? I should be reading a book or something. I I, I should be doing almost anything rather than reading Twitter. But I I did. And an unbeliever was, was kind of scoffing about that. And he said, well, if Jesus is in the bread and wine, he's disguised himself really, really well, hasn't he? And a priest answered him and said, he's actually not hard to see. You just have to humble yourself in order to see him god is here and he's made present to us in these ways and you say i still don't believe it that's really hard you know the text anticipates that objection too look back in verses 13 and 14. paul says that the holy spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it paul knew that when he was writing these things, that just as we look around and have a hard time seeing it, that they also were going to look around and have a hard time seeing it. How would we know that these things are true and that Matt just isn't making all of this up to try to make us all feel better on a Sunday morning? Well, Paul says that the answer is ultimately that we have the Holy Spirit as a guarantee. Um, A guarantee... Legally, it's something like an earnest money deposit, right? When you go to buy real property, you often cut a little check just to let the buyer know that you're serious, or the uh, the seller know that you're serious, that you're not going to walk away. You have to give something now so that the people will understand that the bigger thing is coming in the future. That's what an earnest money deposit is, and that's what this term means, guarantee. And so God has given us the Holy Spirit now so that we will understand and and sense that the bigger things are coming in the future, that the story is moving towards a conclusion that we're part of, and and that he has not abandoned us in the middle of the story without giving us an ending. We have the Spirit now so that we understand that God is really going to do in the future what he's promised. Can you sense him? Is he here? If you're really quiet, you you can hear him. And that's real. And that's how we know that we're at the right spot in the story. And we know where it's headed, too. That's the promise at the end of verse 23, uh, where the text says that that the church, his body, the fullness of him, that's Jesus, who fills all in all. That's a lot of all, right? (laughs) Where is that headed? Well, it reminds me, uh, of the story of Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel chapter 2. Remember, there's the story of the statue, and I won't go through all of that for reasons of time, but remember that at the end of the dream, the rock comes and smashes the statute, or statue, and the, the text says that the rock grows so big that it fills the whole world. And that's where this is headed. God has promised it, that he will not leave one inch of his creation unredeemed. When will that happen? We don't know. But we know that it will happen, and we know that in some way we're part of it. So how do we become a part of the story? Well, you're sitting here today and you're not a Christian. I am so glad that you're here. Gosh, we want non, uh, people who are not yet Christians to come in and, and, and see what we do to experience God's goodness and to hear the story. Um, in some ways, it's the, the, the hardest thing in the world, but in other ways, it's the easiest thing in the world. Right? We know that baptism plays an important part in that. Uh, but at another level, what does verse, 15, or verse 13 say that the Ephesians did? Right? How did they become part of the story? In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed. Hear and believe. In some ways, that's the simplest thing in the world. You don't have to do anything. Just hear and believe. And if you're sitting here today and you're not a Christian, I hope that you will hear and believe. If you are a Christian, well, what does God want from you? What does God hope for you? My question is, are you making this story, the story of your inheritance, uh, the hope that God will fill all in all, are you making that the dominant narrative of your life? Are you making that the story through which you interpret yourself and all of the other things that are happening around you? It's easy in America to believe other stories, to believe the story of the American dream, all right? to believe the story of postmodernism, to believe stories that are not the Christian story. It's easy for Christians to do that. I've had to learn this. This has been hard. There came a time in my life Um, when I felt called to go and work for the church. And I did that. I I went, I I left behind the majority of of my law career and I went for five years and I went and worked for the church. And and in a lot of ways that that was good. But I developed a narrative of my life where the climax of my life was that I went to work for the church. You know, I was a a lawyer before and wandering about in lawyer darkness. And then I saw the light, and God called me to go work for the church, and I did. And so when that collapsed, that was very painful for me. Uh, It it was almost inexpressibly painful, and I still feel it sometimes. But it was because, in part, I had developed this narrative of my life where the climax of my life was that I was called to go work for the church. And I was expressing this to somebody at one point, expressing my pain, which was real and legitimate. And, and, and I said, I don't even know what the story of my life is anymore. I don't know where I go from here. What, what, what is even the narrative of my existence? Because this story that I've been telling myself collapsed. And he said to me something that I have not forgotten. He said, that is not the story of your life. The story of your life is that you were a sinner and that Jesus loved you and rescued you and made you part of his kingdom. And maybe that's what you need to say to yourself this morning. Maybe you're telling yourself a different story. God's story is the best one. And when you let God's story become the dominant narrative of your life and stop believing and chasing after all of these other stories, that's when you can begin to grow. Um, And that's when you can begin to feel a sense of peace and a sense of understanding of all of the stuff that is going on around you. And as St. Paul prayed for the Ephesians that they would uh, be able to see things that they couldn't normally see, that they'd be able to see the story. Um, That's my prayer for you too and for the Church of the Lamb and for me. May God help us to see the story. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.